Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part two of my interview with Jason Eberly and John Brahaney. In part one, we discuss Jason's claim that there is no sufficient moral reason for a Catholic to request a religious exemption from a COVID-19 vaccine mandate. We also discuss the authoritative nature of the Church's current teachings and statements regarding these vaccines. In part two, we first evaluate Jason's claim that Catholics who object to vaccine mandates exhibit either scrupulosity or voluntary ignorance. We then address ways that people can properly form their conscience on the mandate issue. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Jason Eberle and John Brahaney. Jason, John, I'd like to uh, talk about conscience and actually uh, misinformed conscience. So Jason, in the America article back from August of 2021, you wrote this, quote, individuals who object to such a mandate, and we're talking the uh, COVID-19 vaccine mandate. So individuals who object to such a mandate and seek an exemption due to moral qualms that have already been addressed by the church's highest magisterial authorities are exhibiting scrupulosity, the unreasonable fear that they are committing a sin when they are not. In the present case, and we're talking vaccine mandates, voluntary ignorance concerning scientific facts about COVID-19 vaccines or concerning the church's magisterial teaching regarding their moral licity and the moral imperative to be vaccinated for the sake of the common good does not excuse one's exercise of a misinformed conscience, unquote. All right, Jason, I've read this a number of times, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but what you seem to be saying is that people who choose not to accept a COVID-19 vaccine are either exhibiting scrupulosity or are misinformed as a result of voluntary ignorance. Now, in reality, there are many people, and we talk to them, um, uh, who are seeking and receiving exemptions, including medical professionals, who have made a prudential judgment of conscience not to accept a vaccine. Are you saying that these people are wrong? Yeah. So th- again, thanks for the question, because again, this is the this is the heart of the matter, right? This is the the, the conclusion for which I'm arguing. And a uh, couple things. First of all, again, I'm I'm solely addressing the question of whether Catholics, insofar in terms of their identity as Catholics, their conscience informed by the teachings of the church, as we talked about in part one, are refusing these vaccines solely because of their remote connection to these abortions that occurred, you know, a few, some decades ago. And, and we don't even know if one of them was actually an abortion. It might have been a mis- natural miscarriage. But saying that aside, the point being is that if that's the reason upon which they're requesting a religious exemption or, or, or just refusing to get the vaccine, that's what I'm I'm challenging, right? From the pers- from the perspective of of, of the church, um, there may be other reasons to refuse a vaccine that are totally legitimate, um, both medical and even and even non medical. So this is solely directed at that, at that narrow uh, point. So obviously, we can't judge the interior state of another person's conscience. That's only for God to do. Um, but if we do want to avoid the dictatorship of relativism that Pope Benedict XVI aptly warned against, then we can't just accept any individual's subjective assessment of the moral aseity of a specific type of action. 
That being said, there are, of course, many moral issues on which the church either A, has not made a definitive magisterial pronouncement, or B, divergent positions may be taken by individuals with well-informed consciences that follow the general principles of the church's teaching. Um, I edited a book a few years ago called Contemporary Controversies in Catholic Bioethics, 34 essays written by 17 different Catholic bioethicists, all of whom consider themselves faithful to the magisterium of the church. Um, you know, Charles Kearns is not in there, anybody like that. <laughs> and they're writing point-counterpoint articles, you know, fundamentally disagreeing, uh, just as, you know, John and I are today on, uh, on points of church teaching. So what does that mean in the present case? In the present case, my understanding is that the church through the CDF, we can set aside Pope, you know, Pope Francis's statements. Just looking at the CDF, um, has definitively spoken. John might challenge this my use of the word definitive because it's just a note, but I think it's it's definitive enough of a statement um, that is morally licit. Again, setting aside moral obligation, but it's morally licit to receive any of the currently approved or authorized COVID nineteen vaccines. I thus conclude that any faithful Catholic who wishes to avoid vaccination for a religious-based reason, right, being narrow here, is evidently either misinformed about the church's teaching, willfully ignorant about the church's teaching, or outright dissenting from the church's teaching by mistakenly believing they are doing something morally illicit uh, in receiving the vaccine when the church has clearly taught that they are not. And that's the essence of scrupulosity. Um, so, yeah, I guess I am laying that charge, but, you know, it, it's... Uh, you know, we are called to engage in fraternal correction when we see that the consciences of our brothers and sisters are, are not regularly formed, which could be me, which could be me. <laughs> John Brahaney, your response. Yeah, well, uh, again, I think um, like the statement, no moral reason, uh, I think this is a, a bit of an overstatement. Uh, it was interesting. You brought up that issue of scrupulosity which is a, uh, I guess it's a category, uh, it's, a, it's a phenomenon that, that was identified, I guess, in particular in the uh, post-Council uh, of Trent period of the church when, when a big emphasis of reform in the church was uh, teaching people to make good confessions and encouraging the process of, of regular uh, confessions. That's, that's where that that whole thing of scrupulosity uh, comes from. I'm just curious, Jason, in your daily work, uh, you know, at the university and stuff, do you field questions uh, from the public about ethical decision-making and help people to sort through decisions? Not in the way that the, the NCBC does, you know, we're, we're an academic research uh, center primarily. And so, while as an individual, I've had people reach out to me, uh, particularly after these uh, articles came out, um, either you know affirming and 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 you know thanking me for helping to form their consciences, or you know respectfully and thoughtfully challenging me. I had one person say that I'm going to hell, but you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> only one, <laughs> only only one, yeah. Um, my maybe the others got caught up in my email junk filter. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, the point yeah. being is that. You know, unlike the NCBC, we don't provide consultation as a service to the general public. Um, that's not yeah. that's not what we do. We do 
do ethics consultations within hospitals. I personally don't, but faculty of our center do. Primarily, we're more concerned with with educating our, our PhD students who are then going to go out into either academic positions or into, into hospitals. A lot of them go into Catholic healthcare or undergraduates. We have undergraduate major and minor program. To be clear, though, I, I'm going to be absolutely clear on this. As an educator, uh, I'm a philosopher first and foremost. I mean, I'm always a Catholic first yeah, and foremost. Yeah. But you know, my goal is not to impose my own views uh, on, on what students do. And you know, in this context, even here in these op-eds, I, I'm trying my best and maybe failing in some way uh, not to be so much asserting my personal opinion, but my understanding of what the church is teaching. And again, that's what, and that, and I think that's where we're having, you know, legitimate disagreement. It's not that John thinks this way and Jason thinks this way. I think it's more John representing the NCBC has interpreted what the church is saying in this way. And I, as a Catholic bioethicist, am inter- interpreting what the church is saying this way. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. And the reason I asked that question, uh, it's part based on the experience of the NCBC in fielding a lot of questions from the public, and in part knowing a bit from the history of the church where that term uh, scrupulosity comes from that you used. And uh, the term scrupulosity, I think, comes out of the confessional practice of the church, especially after the Council of Trent, uh, when the church emphasized uh, as a way of moral reform uh, that people needed to make regular confessions. Of course, I got to be weekly uh, in places like in the United States. Uh, and they had to make good confessions and they had to know their sins and so on. And in that context, uh, confessors encountered a phenomenon, actually probably a bit of a neurosis, where some people were excessively uh, concerned with rules and following the teachings of the church uh, and avoiding sin uh, and those kinds of things. So, so that is a real thing, but it, but it came up in a certain context. And I would say that uh, in the NCBC, we field a lot of questions from the public. Uh, in fact, I think we're probably on track, and Joe can correct me on this, uh, to do well over 3,000 uh, consults by phone and email uh, from the public this year. And of course, a significant chunk of them have to do with COVID-19 and the vaccine and with vaccine mandates, although we get a bunch of end-of-life questions. And I would say that I've helped a number of people to sort through ethical discernment uh, about the vaccine. And I don't know how many I would say exhibit scrupulosity. I think there's a lot of honest searching, uh, you know, which is one thing. I think there's a lot of fear, you know, and I think you have to help people to sort uh, through those fears. But I'd have to say I I haven't heard a lot of scrupulosity. And I think that, I, I just think that's an unfortunate term, especially when expressed in in kind of a you know uh, a binary way, you know, you either accept the vaccine, uh, given everything we know, or you're exhibiting scrupulosity, or you're willfully ignorant. And I just think the whole situation is much more complex. I think people are struggling for a number of reasons. 
with the whole idea of vaccination, uh, this particular vaccine, as, as opposed to sort of any other they might have gotten over time, uh, for various reasons, and they are, in a sense, facing existential questions. I just don't see much scrupulosity, and I think that's a term uh, like saying to somebody, uh, perhaps a member of the opposite sex, you're being hysterical, that, you know, probably we shouldn't use. So anyway, maybe we want to talk about the willful, willful ignorance part here in a second, but I, I did want to say those things on scrupulosity. Joe, can I, re- can I briefly respond to this? Sure. Yeah. So, and then I have a follow-up question too. Yeah. So, I mean, we often approach these questions, any, any moral question, from both a theoretical and a pastoral perspective. And, you know, I'm approaching these things primarily from a theoretical perspective. I'm trying to analyze and understand what the church is teaching and analyze and understand how people are receiving that teaching and choosing to act on it. And it's under that aegis that as an ethicist, right, unless we're going to be complete relativists or subjectivists about morality, we are going to make judgments, not necessarily about everything about a person's internal moral character or moral motivations or, or so on. But just as we as Catholics would say about a woman choosing to, to terminate her pregnancy, that she is making a wrong decision, right? We're not necessarily going to pastorally approach her and shake our fingers in her face and yell at her and say, you're going to hell, right? Pastorally, we, you know, Pope Francis calls us particularly, but and even John Paul II in Mulieres Dignitatum, right? Calls for us uh, to, you know, approach women in that situation as Jesus approached the, the woman caught in adultery, right? And the point being is that there are objective assessments of right and wrong, and then there are the assessments of, of a person's moral character. So I, t- I take your point, John, it's, it's that um, that not everyone who is is wrestling with the question of COVID-19 vaccination is, you know, ill-willed or simply misinformed or simply exhibiting scrupulosity. As I said earlier, on this narrow question of if someone is is saying, you know, if someone were to call me, again, I don't provide this, uh, our center provides this as a service, but again, people do reach out to me on an individual basis. And if someone reached out to me and said, you know, Jason, is in your opinion, is it okay for me as a Catholic to get this vaccine because I'm pro-life and I'm really concerned about these connections to, to, to abortions? You know, again, I would explain this in the, you know, much, I'm not going to rehearse the whole speech I would give, but the point being is that I would point them to the church's teaching and assure them, allay their conscience that the church has said it's okay. You, you, on, on that particular point, you may have other reasons not to want to get the vaccine. That's that's your business. But if your concern is, can I get it because of this connection to abortion, I would counsel them, you know, pastorally. I'm not a pastor formally, but again, they're asking my advice. Yeah. I would counsel yeah. them pastorally, it's okay. You're okay. Yeah. And, Don't worry and, about and it. And Jason, we, we, we say the same thing. I mean, I'm it, glad uh, to hear that. We say you are not forbidden. You are not barred by the teachings of the church for this reason. I think we all make that point. But when you use the term, uh, even when you use the term scrupulosity, um, you know, again, I, I think that's 
perhaps uh, like trying to dissuade a woman from having an abortion and saying, look, you either recognize uh, that your fetus is a human being and a human person, or you're being hysterical. Uh, you know, that's that's not probably just, and that's probably no not. No one would say hysterical, effective. John. Sorry for, to interrupt. But I just got to say that this is, you're, you're, you're creating a false equivalency. These are not... It's not about whether the woman's hysterical. Is is she wrong? No, no, and, and- no, no, no. I know, I'm, Jason. I, I, I'm not trying to. Uh, I'm not trying to create an equivalency. What I'm saying is that words carry connotations, and to set up and call a set of people who are struggling with ethical assessment based on a consideration where, at most, the church has said you're not forbidden you're permitted, this is not a bar, uh, to say that they're being scrupulous is, I'm saying, analogous to using the term hysterical. It's a pejorative term. It doesn't describe the reality. I don't think it's effective. And that, that's the point I want to make. All right, Jason, I'd like to, um, a couple of follow-up questions sure. that I'd like to ask, but we're just not going to have time to do it. So I want to, I want to go to the next one. And, and you, you hinted at this, but I'd like to maybe have you flush it out a little bit more. Do you recognize any reason, now aside from medical, because you did make that, you know, for, there are certainly medical exemptions. If people can't receive a COVID-19 vaccine for medical reasons, perfectly legitimate. But do you recognize any reason, aside from medical, why people would make the determination not to accept a vaccine and, and maybe asked a little differently. Are there any valid or is there any valid ground for a Catholic or really anybody else to refuse a COVID-19 vaccines? Can you clarify? So personally, again, I'm just speaking my own person, making my own informed prudential judgment as an individual who obviously has no authority in the church. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the club. Yeah, uh, I don't No. Um, I believe that the, the, the science... You don't. You don't what? You don't, I don't, you don't I, believe... I don't think that there's any prudential reason for someone to refuse okay. the COVID-19 vaccine unless they have um, you know, a known medical condition that would um, you know, make them you know, not receptive to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth noting on this point that no major religious tradition... Um, again, only the church has this kind of the, you know, hierarchical structure, but lots of religious groups have... you know synods and so on and other structures of authority where they put out statements and no major religious tradition has spoken out in an authoritative manner against the COVID-19 vaccines. Even Christian scientists who are generally skeptical of medicine in general and prefer a a faith healing approach uh, have stated, you can go on their website, that it's good to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Now, does this, you know, this doesn't mean that there might not be an overriding moral reason to refuse a COVID-19 vaccine. But to be honest, I haven't heard such a reason articulated yet. Uh, John has has referred vaguely to there are reasons out there, there are other reasons. Uh, I would be very interested to hear an articulation of what these particular moral reasons are. John Berhady. Yeah, well, I would say b- beyond the issue of declining to use them legitimately because of their association with abortion-derived cell lines, one could, as a matter of ethics and a matter of discerning what is proper stewardship over one's own life and health, and we know that there are things you know you can do also to protect the common good beyond vaccination, uh, one could discern that this is not 
uh, a good decision. It, it's not the way to protect one's own life and health. Uh, and that this is a matter of ethics. And, and one could decline the vaccine uh, on that ground. One could decline the vaccine because uh, one has already had COVID-19. Uh, he's properly uh, protected. He's not going to you know, by, by the best scientific studies, suffer serious, serious sickness and hospitalization and is also less uh, likely to transmit. Um, and one could decline uh, to accept it on that ground that one is accepting, in a sense, only risk uh, associated with the vaccine uh, and no meaningful benefit. So uh, I, I think that is... Um, I think that is a potential ground. Jason, you want to respond to it? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll simply make the point that the, the particular reason John just articulated is, I, I would say, falls under the aegis of, of, a, of a medical reason. It's, you know, the, the, more, the underlying moral principle is, you know, A, yes, we do have uh, stewardship rights over our own bodies, and B, that we should evaluate things on a risk-benefit ratio. But this is kind of a debated question, even among epidemiologists, about whether previous COVID infection does confer uh, sufficient and as long-lasting immunity as getting the vaccine. I actually having uh, dinner last night with a colleague of mine, a physician who's a faithful Catholic, and um, he was telling me that yeah, he you know he's very much pro-vaccination, but he had a patient who was asking like you know. Do I need to get this vaccine? I have some concerns about it, you know, some fears, and and he just had COVID, and he said, you know, you probably you don't need it at this time. Down the road, you might need to get vaccinated because your immunity from your COVID infection might wane. But of course, as we know, immunity from the vaccines also wane, and you know, we're talking about boosters now and everything. Again, this just as we are all ethically wrestling with this, right? The scientists are scientifically wrestling with it, and I'm not a scientist. So I do make, again, my prudential judgments based on what the scientists are telling me. I think there's a concern of fundamental distrust in public scientific uh, representatives, and that's underlying some of these things. But then those aren't moral reasons, right? Um, those aren't moral reasons defined by the church. The church doesn't tell us, be distrustful of, of scientists, right? That's not a church teaching. So I, I do think, you know, even though everything John said is correct, that that doesn't mean that just because we you have a right to exercise prudential stewardship over your body, that we don't make mistakes, sometimes willful mistakes, um, in in forming our consciences and how to exercise that responsible stewardship. Well, yeah, and in a sense, <laughs> the, I, I think this is a great conversation, and again, much much more work to do, either either in conversation or in print about sorting out all these ethical issues, but. In in the article again, uh, I, I think uh, I, I think you and I think Tobias, I think this was in the co-written article, sh you know, sort of stressed the scientific facts about this vaccine, and that if and if people did not, in a sense, accept, uh, I guess, a certain public representation about their efficacy and, and safety, then one uh, would be guilty of willful or voluntary uh, ignorance. 
And uh, again, I, I know you have a more nuanced understanding than you could convey in a short article, but the short article is what, what gets printed. Um, and it's what people, I guess, begin reacting to. But, you know, there, there are many uh, profound questions about these vaccines, even, even the idea you know, and I will say I've, I've approached this whole thing very carefully myself, um, discerning whether they're safe. You know, is it is it OK to delay uh, a decision to vaccinate vaccinate until one has some level of moral certainty that they're safe? You know, and I, I think that's a legitimate ethical position to take. And if someone comes and says you have a duty <laughs> To get your vaccine right now, in fact, somebody is going to compel you to get this vaccine right now. Your city government, your employer, an airline, I mean, who knows? I think it's worth a person stepping back and saying, now, wait a minute, what's the right thing to do here? What is, what is truly good for myself, you know, my dependents, my community, uh, and so on. I, I do think that's an ethical question. And unfortunately, you know, there are many, many questions about these vaccines uh, that people have. I mean, e you mentioned, uh, you know, the need for boosters, you know, a minute ago. Um, that's good. A good question whether that's the right technical term to use. But if you had said that on YouTube or Facebook or something, even a couple of months ago, hey, I think the uh, the efficacy of these vaccines is waning, and pretty soon people might have to get a third shot or a fourth shot. You probably would have been, uh, well, you know, opposed the video or something. Probably would have been taken down, and you might have been banned from that platform. And yet now I think it's widely acknowledged that the efficacy in particular of these uh, mRNA vaccines, it is declining over time. And the question, one question is, what's the significance of that? And what's the ethical and legal thing to do because of it? I think another issue, and this is an ethical question, and this came up, I know um, you did a podcast with the Ethics and Public Policy Center and uh, Dr. Aaron, Aaron Cariotti brought up a point about vaccine mandates and individual decision-making that, that's kind of of interest in this case. Um, he said that the vaccine mandate issued by his university not only said he had to get vaccinated for uh, COVID-19, let's just say, you know, it's uh, it's it's the mRNA thing. It's a two dose thing. That mandate extended into the future to any vaccine deemed essential by his employer. And I guess you have to sign off on a form accepting that. And I think an individual could step back. And this is not a question of abortion derived cell lines. This is not a question even in a very narrow sense of what's this two-dose shot going to do to me, but to say, do I want to sign up for uh, a regime uh, of future consent like this? And I think somebody could step back and say, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to think this through and make a decision 
that is a combination of, uh, I guess, good prudential decision-making and come to a conscientious judgment that one will or will not uh, accept that. And I, I do think it's an ethical decision. Uh, I think it's, it's potentially a correct decision. I'm not saying it's the only correct decision, but I also think that someone that comes to such a decision is not necessarily exhibiting, exhibiting scrupulosity and is not voluntarily ignorant. So there's there's a lot there. I mean, this is a whole. Yeah. We could, uh, we're going to get part three, but I, let, let me so, just try. To make, we're going to get part four. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let me just try to make a few brief uh, uh, points in response to to some of the points that John brought up. So the first thing I would say is that again, to to go back to the charge of scrupulosity, that was again on the the narrow question of refusing the vaccines because of the the relation to abortion. Um, there could be, yeah, other reasons why one refused the vaccine. On the question of, of, of will, on, on a misinformed conscience due to willful ignorance about the science, um, again, yeah, I will, I will own the fact that that should not be a, a categorical statement for sure. However, what I am seeing um, is that people, and this is true on people on the political left and the pol- political right, you know, they, they, they pick and choose what, where they want to receive information from. This is an issue of trustworthiness of authorities and who has legitimate authority. And, you know, there, there's a point later, I know Joe's going to bring, us, bring up this question about, you know, thinking, you know, forming our conscience in a communal manner, right? If we're, again, if we're to avoid a dictatorship of relativism, we can't simply form our consciences sitting in front of a computer screen with reading a manipulated news feed by you know out by algorithms. Um, that, you know, John, you pointed out how you know things might get you know you know there's some policing of that that's happening that is that is uh, surely concerning. The point being is that if that is how one is forming their conscience, they are you know that's not the way to do it. Um, I'm not saying everyone's doing it that way, but I think a fair number of people are doing it. And again, people on the political left and the political right, you know, for sure. And, and so we do need to be prudential in what sources, you know, we trust. And part of the, my concern is that there is a built-in mistrust of uh, local and, and federal level public health authorities precisely because those authorities have changed recommendations as the understanding of the science has evolved. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people on Facebook or other social media saying, oh, well, at the beginning of the pandemic, Fauci said we, we should not be wearing masks. Um, and now he's saying we should all be wearing masks, right? Well, the reason he was saying that before is that people were hoarding masks such that there was a shortage experienced by frontline healthcare workers who were more being more directly exposed to COVID than those of us in the general public before the pandemic had you know, spread so widely. And so, yeah, he says one thing at one time, and then when the circumstances change, he says another. But people point to things like that as evidence of a reason to distrust individuals like, like, like Anthony Fauci. So that's a, the concern underlying my my assessment that some people, again, not saying this categorically, but some people are being willfully ignorant of the data that does show both the safety and the efficacy of these vaccines um, in general, right? Again, we're talking about, we're doing population 
health management. It's a whole different category from individual clinical health management. Um, so that's just a couple points of response. John, you know, anything to say or, or should we move on? Well, uh, I, I'll just say, you know, I think I, I know we intend to talk about the common good and, and, and public health uh, in a dedicated way. And I, uh, one thing I, I want to bring up, I know where just to say, let's not take it up now, let's move on. But, um, but to come back to it, I know we're focused a lot on the individual here and, and perhaps the individual Catholic, you know, what, what decision should they make? What this, or what decision may they make uh, or not and why. But I think we also, as ethicists, could come around and talk about the responsibilities of those in positions of authority and influence uh, to serve uh, ethical goods. And, and I think there's a lot to say on that topic because I, I think people do hear all kinds of things. I think there are legitimate questions and I don't think they get answered. And that is not all the fault of, of individuals, you know, who, um, you know, who believe everything that pops up in their, their newsfeed. So we should come back to that. Uh, yeah. All right. So I'd like to change gears a bit and talk about, we talked about misinformed conscience, but let's now talk about properly formed conscience. So Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches in the following two paragraphs. This is going to be paragraph 1778 and 1782. The church teaches us, quote, conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that he is going to perform, is in the process of performing, or has already completed. In all he says and does, man is obliged to follow faithfully what he knows to be just and right. It is by the judgment of his conscience that man perceives and recognizes the prescriptions of the divine law. Man has the right to act in conscience and in freedom so as personally to make moral decisions. He must not be forced to act contrary to his conscience, nor must he be prevented from acting according to his conscience especially in religious matters. Jason, we've, we've kind of talked about this, and, but I'd like to kind of, kind of bring things together. In light of this teaching from the Catechism, an authoritative teaching, I think we will all agree that the Catechism is authoritative. So Jason, in light of this teaching, how are Catholics to form their consciences with regard to COVID-19 vaccines and the mandates? Great. So, I mean, I do agree the catechism is authoritative, but it's authoritative <laughs> as a summary, right? It's a teaching right. document. Um, it's a summary of the, of the teaching. It's not itself constitutive of the magisterium in the way that, say, a papal encyclical, apostolic exhortation, or conciliar constitution are. Um, rather, as you, you know, the compendium to the catechism, much bigger than the catechism, right? All the, it's the footnotes, right? That's where all the magic happens, uh, so to speak. Um, and so what I want to do is uh, turn in understanding these two quotations from the catechism uh, to uh, a couple of uh, sources upon which they're drawing. So the first one, uh, John had already mentioned in part one of our interview, uh, Lumen Gentium, right? The dogmatic constitution on the church from the Second Vatican Council. Uh, in note 25, it talks about Papal authority, I'm not going to, you know, the whole notion of religious assent, religious submission, and so on. There's a part of that quotation I want to focus on. Um, it states that one's conscience, quote, perceives and recognizes the prescriptions of the divine law, end quote. Again, to avoid what I think is a, would be a dangerous subjectivism of interpretation, 
one's conscience should not be understood as creating what it purports to be divine law, but rather again, perceiving and recognizing what is divine law. So how, how do I, as an individual member of the faithful, ensure that I'm doing the latter and not the former? Well, Lumen Gentium tells us, by faithful adherence, i.e. religious and submission, to the church's teaching authority. And again, we've already debated this in part one, the levels of authority and so on. But for me, the with respect to COVID-19 vaccination, the church's doctrinal authority have, again, clearly said that if my only concern is the abortion-derived cell lines, that's not a sufficient concern to refuse vaccination. And again, I have a suggestion preying on my conscience from Pope Francis that I may it may be an obligation on my part uh, to be vaccinated. Moving on, I want to talk about the second quoted passage, which uh, uh, appears initially uh, in Vatican II's Declaration on Religious Freedom that I referenced before, Dignitates Humanae. And it's worth noting that the context in which that quotation appears is a document primarily concerned with historical and contemporary totalitarian political regimes, primarily Nazism and Soviet-style communism, that inhibit the practice of one's religious faith religious education, missionary outreach, etc. This assertion does not directly entail either A, that the church's magisterium has no role to play in forming the consciences of the faithful, or B, that governmental or institutional authorities have no role to play in restricting certain behaviors, conscientious though they may be, that threaten the common good. In fact, this document clearly states in number seven, quote, the right to religious freedom is exercised in human society. Hence, its exercise is subject to certain regulatory norms. In the use of all freedoms, the moral principle of personal and social responsibility is to be observed. In the exercise of their rights, individual men and social groups are bound by the moral law to have respect both for the rights of others and for their own duties towards others and for the common welfare of all. Men are to deal with their fellows in justice and civility. Furthermore, society has the right to defend itself against possible abuses committed on the pretext of freedom of religion. It is the special duty of government to provide this protection. End quote. So just briefly, you know, consider all the governmental restrictions we do accept and affirm as Catholics. Right. Um, we're seeing this play out in Texas, right, with the new law restricting abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected. There are physicians who who wish to provide abortions who are arguing that their conscience is telling them that they should be exempt from this law, that they should be able to provide abortions after six weeks. But we as Catholics, um, you know, we may have different opinions about the Texas law. There are nuances about that particular law. I'm not going to get into all that. But the point being is that those of us who are politically pro-life do believe that restricting the rights of the conscience of physicians to perform abortions is a correct restriction on the right of conscience. And some even put this in religious terms, right? In Texas, the Satanic Temple, which is arguably recognized as a religion under our constitution, we may not recognize it as, by, as Catholics as a religion, but they are arguing that you know to, they should be able to perform abortion rituals as under the, the auspices of religious freedom. So the point is, is that in general, in civil society, and we as Catholics and Catholics in America have always recognized legitimate restrictions on the exercise of conscience, uh, even religiously informed conscience, 
for the sake of the common good. And Dignitatis Humanae explicitly says this. John, your response. Uh, okay, and I, I understood the question, uh, I guess, to be how could we help people to form their consciences? Uh, maybe I'll just offer a couple practical thoughts uh, in that regard. Um, well, I, I do think knowing uh, and understanding the teachings of the church, you know, it is, well, it's one of the surest guides to proper formation of conscience. A, a number of things uh, go into formation of conscience, but I would say understanding what are uh, significant and authoritative moral goods uh, or norms or moral harms that should be avoided, you know, is the first thing. So I think in informing uh, one's conscience, one should ask, am I contradicting or violating any teachings of the church, particularly those teachings of the church uh, that, that demand uh, that I avoid certain moral harms, you know, killing, stealing, lying, uh, sexual sins, you know, those kinds of things. So that's the first step. Second, identify uh, significant moral goods and duties. Again, stewardship over life and health, uh, obligations to neighbors uh, and to the community uh, and the common good. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately trying to sort these things out. A an important part of uh, conscience formation is actually gathering sufficient factual knowledge uh, and reliable factual knowledge to be able to come to some conclusion about a, you know, a feasible practical action. And, you know, one other thing I, I want to mention, and on, I've had to do this a bit myself, you know, but it is to sort through other factors that drive us in decision-making, or at least action, you know, uh, we humans, uh, supposedly rational animals, uh, advertisers, and a lot of behavioral scientists would tell us, actually, we are, we're driven and act significantly uh, on the basis of appetites and emotions, uh, you know, and sometimes clever appeals uh, to those things. I do think uh, people informing their conscience have to acknowledge things like fears and uh, even things like political stances, if you will. You know, we're, we're a pretty polarized country. Uh, we only have two parties. But, um, you know, sometimes those political feelings enter into how we approach even an issue like vaccination. I suppose you could make a case that red states are less vaccinated than blue states. There, there may be some truth to that. On the other hand, you know, if we went back, I guess, a little over a year or something in the middle of Operation Warp Speed, there were important Democrat politicians who would say they would never take or trust uh, a vaccine that was uh, developed under the administration of Donald Trump. I just think that and, and, you know, I wonder if there's a place, in fact, I had this idea as I prepared for the show, for someone to write a little examination of conscience, right? Uh, this, this, used, this is a thing, I should say. I shouldn't say it used to be a thing. But an examination of conscience where one could ask oneself certain questions and explicitly note 
factors like fear and and even you know political habits i guess if you will and take those into account and truly come to hear the voice of god and not to be driven uh, by those things again fears and appetites and so on but to make a judgment that this is a moral good or this this is where i am ethically and to do that rationally Anyway, I hope those steps might help people to think about it. Yeah, Jason, I'd like to, I'm not going to do it now, but because we're going to talk about it later, the role of public health authorities, because I think that's the next logical step in what you said, but I think we're probably not going to get to that till part three of our interview. Um, we're, I'd like to close out this interview, um, or this part of the interview, I should say, Jason, by discussing uh, a term that you've used, and John Berhaney brought it up earlier, and I'd like to come back to it. You've you've spoken about this in, in other venues as well, too. So, Jason, on, on various occasions, this, and this is actually apart from the two uh, essays that you wrote last August, on a couple of occasions, you've spoken about the need to, quote, think in a communal fashion, unquote. And I was wondering if you could tell us what exactly does this mean and how do we balance the communal aspect of forming conscience with making informed individual judgments? Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked, uh, gave me the opportunity to expound further on that. Because again, these are often, again, with just as with terms like scrupulosity, right? They, these have nuanced and, and, and sometimes... Um, morally laden understandings that that can be uh, taken in one direction or the other and so so i just want to say first of all i i i I, even though i stand by my assessment i I affirm john's um i I take to heart everything john said about the the use of the term of a term like scrupulosity even it might technically be accurate uh pastorly you know i would never tell someone in their face you're just being scrupulous right um but anyways but the same thing is happening here right this thinking in a communal fashion right can be taken a lot of ways well certainly it doesn't mean you know we all think the same thing right um there's you know both in and outside the church there's plenty of room for diversity of thought diversity of belief uh diversity of, of values which you know there's obviously going to be points of incompatibility uh, with uncertain of these points. And the key is we ought to live together peaceably in a just society, right? Again, I think that's a lot of where that previous long quotation I gave from Dignitatis Humanae is, is uh, aiming towards. So that being said, you know, this is not about thinking in common as if we're like the Borg on Star Trek. We just have one collective consciousness, right? That's not what, what that means. But Again, if we are to avoid what you know, I think would be a dangerous tyranny of moral subjectivism, which St. John Paul II explicitly rejects in Veritatis Splendor, um, the proper formation of one's conscience, uh, and I said this before, you know, can't be done just sitting in front of the computer screen. Um, it can't just be done on a purely individual basis, um, which is why, you know, though I'm always, I'm not happy to hear about people who are in moral distress, but it's also heartening that so many people are reaching out to the NCBC uh, or reaching out to, you know, individuals uh, like myself or re- reaching out to their, you know, their pastors or their local bishops to seek guidance, right? They are seeking that, that communal input, but I, but clearly not everyone's doing that. Um, and so, and so again, I, I do have that concern that, that some people are the process by which they're forming their consciences is not a sound methodology to, to arrive at truth or something approximating truth. And again, faithful Catholics are called to form 
uh, their consciences lay the church's teachings alongside other members of the faithful. And I just want to say this is, you know, not just a matter of listening to the church's magisterial authorities. Like you said, Joe, well, in part three or part eight of the interview, we'll get to the question of the role, the legitimate role of public health authority or other governmental institutional authorities. But I, I kind of prefacing that, I want to say that when St. Thomas Aquinas discusses conscience in his disputed questions on the truth and in the Summa Theologiae, he clearly defines both a role for other members of the faithful to engage in what he refers to as fraternal correction when they see a fellow brother or sister in Christ's conscience as, as being in error, and also for civil authorities to publicly admonish those whose actions are based on an erroneous conscience threatening the common good. And so while Aquinas is clear that even an erring conscience binds us to obey it for complicated logical reasons that I'm not going to go into right now, and he's also clear that an erring conscience does not necessarily excuse one's action unless they were you know, misinformed by invincible ignorance, ignorance that cannot be overcome, uh, of morally pertinent information. And I just want to say, I think uh, on this point, what John just said is well taken that people's habits of thought, right? Again, I'm, a, I'm a Aristotelian Thomist. I'm a virtue theorist. You know, we, we form these habits of, of not only thinking, uh, thinking and willing that never deprive us of freedom, but once they're inculcated, once they are, are, are cultivated, they're very hard to break, which is why, you know, we, we have to cultivate these in children from their young. And Aristotle even says the job of the legislators to train citizens to be virtuous from when they're young. Point being is that once we develop certain intellectual vices, vices of how we accept and interpret information, which I think is, is, is something all too evident in contemporary society. Again, this is on both the political left and the political right. You know, the narrowness and the divisiveness that John referred to. I think that has those vices themselves may excuse what, how one has formed their conscience. So I, it's just, it's just coming harder and harder when we, especially if we're thinking outside of the church to really arrive at what truth is as an, as an individual. So hence the need to think in a communal fashion. John Haney comments on thinking in a communal fashion. Well, yeah, quickly. <laughs> it's it's a great topic. I mean, on the one hand, it seems to me that uh, as Catholics, we are called to form our consciences uh, in light of the teachings of the church. There's an old saying, and I can't remember the uh, the exact origins, but it is that we are to feel with the church. Uh, Centuria cum ecclesia, and uh, I won't go too too deep into that, but uh, talk about talk about the proper community, uh, if you will, within which uh, to form one's conscience. Uh, the people of God made the people of God not by birth, but because God called us out, you know, called us into creation, and and out of our our mere human condition into fellowship with him uh, and the other persons of the Trinity. So absolutely, it just seems to me, and I've, I've heard different terms uh, go by here, dictatorship of, of relativism, you know, and I know there's a, a term floating out there, expressive individualism. And I just don't think that a professing and practicing Roman Catholic, even an imperfect one, 
can be really a moral relativist uh, or or an expressive individualist. I just don't think that's possible. I, I know those those philosophies are out there, but if someone is truly thinking with the church, feeling with the church, looking for those uh, teachings in good faith and using human freedom appropriately when there is uh, appropriate discretion to act, I think that um, that's essential to good conscience formation and he or she won't fall into those errors. Having said that, I want to make one, one other point, though, about conscience and community. It's interesting when we, we think of some of the great uh, crises of conscience or clashes of conscientious objection, they come when individuals have to stand up alone, sometimes against the community, sometimes against the powers that be, because they have, in a mysterious way, perceived the truth that that the community is missing. I, I think St. Thomas More is probably the archetypal uh, example of a man having to make a, a very difficult decision uh, in conscience. And I, I think we all know enough about More to think he made it very carefully. But if he had if by forming his conscience, he had, in a sense, taken on the positions of those around him, either in the court or even in the church, I think he would have come to a, a very different decision. There was only one bishop uh, in all of England who did not take the oath. Of course, that was Bishop John Fisher. You know, So those, those two men um, really had to stand up, stand apart from not only the powers that be, Henry VIII and other people, but a lot of other people in the community who evidently made decisions to uh, get along, go along, whatever that was. And I'm not saying what those responsibilities were, but sometimes judgments of conscience, that they're never merely the product, I would say, of um, communal consensus or something like that. I, I think we do believe, uh, although it would be hard to articulate, how an individual can come to hear the voice of God, not because not he creates it, and Jason was right to, to, to say that a few minutes ago, but because he perceives it in that moment because he's a rational creature he can come to an awareness of moral truth. I think, uh, just to wrap up, I want to encourage people to approach decisions like vaccination and and everything else uh, in responding to this pandemic as ethical decisions and to think through them carefully, not merely to sort of pray, pay, and obey, uh, but to think through these things critically and to make good decisions for good reasons. So. Anyway, thanks for the opportunity. This concludes part two of my interview with Jason Everill and John Verhaney. In part three, we discuss the role of public health vis-a-vis Catholic teaching, explore notions of the common good with regard to vaccine mandates, and seek to articulate how Catholics are called to prophetic witness on the mandate issue in the public square. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter, 
or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me or host, Joe Zalot. Archived editions of our podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.